what they're giving Cause I'm working for a living Well, good morning, West. I told Andrea I was going to say she's back, <laughs> but I am Amy Coles, and I serve um, with Bishop Leland now um, in the conference office, and I'm glad to be with you. I want to say a special word of welcome to all those that are worshiping with us online on this Labor Day weekend. It is great to be with you. I do have to share that when I came in, um, I saw that over in Wired, they've got water balloons. And so I asked real quickly, I said, can we have water balloons in here? And they said, uh, no. So I just want you to know I tried. Um, but maybe they're saving that for next week and for the birthday celebration and celebrating six years and the water games and it's going to be a great time. So um, I hope you'll be back for that. So since I've been here, there have been some things that have happened. One is school started, and that's changed the routine in my house, probably in many of your houses as well. But the other thing that has happened in my life is that this week I got a new boss. After eight years with us, Bishop Goodpastor retired after 48 years in the ministry, 16 of those serving as a bishop. And then on Thursday, September 1st, we welcomed Bishop Paul Leland to come and be with us. Um, bishop Leland served in the North Carolina Conference before he was elected to be a bishop in our church. Then he's been down in the Alabama-West Florida Conference, and now he's come to serve with us. And so we've had several conversations as he's gotten started, and one of the first things that he needed to know about me as I serve as his assistant is that there will come times on occasion, and sometimes more frequently than just on occasion, sometimes it's daily, that I will email him, I will text him, I will walk into his office and say these two words, I quit. Now, I told him that he didn't need to panic, he didn't need to worry, but that the proper response when I said those two words were, okay, Amy, I'll see you in the morning. Um, would you pray that he doesn't think I'm totally crazy? But it's just one of my ways of blowing off steam. When I've become totally exasperated, when I feel like I'm banging my head up against a wall, when I've had a conversation where my only response can be seriously, it just helps to be able to say those two words. I quit. Kind of like take this job and shove it. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that way? It's, it's a stress release. And as we continue to, to, to think about and, and celebrate work, um, I know that we've all felt that way, that, that jo our jobs just, they, they get to us and we need to quit. So I'm thankful for long weekends and I hope you have some time today. I hope you've had some time yesterday that you'll have some time tomorrow to just sit back and relax, but also give thanks for the work that you're able to do. As we think about work over this Labor Day holiday, I, I did a little bit of research on job satisfaction. And I have to tell you that the numbers are all over the place. According to the Society for Human Resource Management, I think that's all of our human resource folks, they say that 88% of U.S. employees reported overall satisfaction with their current job. If you go to CNN, they say it's barely 50%. And the American Psychological Association puts it at about 66%. So I'll let you pick out the number that you want to have. 
One of the things that they do say, and it's been pretty consistent over the past couple of years, is that these are the things that help with job satisfaction. Respectful treatment of all employees, compensation, benefits, and job security. Now, as I did some research about happiness in their current occupation, here's where the happiest folks in their jobs, and um, the band needs to hear this, singers top the list. Next was municipal firefighters, aircraft assemblers, be thankful for that when you get on the plane the next time, pediatricians, and I thought that was a pretty good one, college instructors and professors, coaches, and professional sports scouts. The lowest, um, folks in the booth can hear this one, audio and video equipment technicians. I hope that is not the case here at West. Travel agents. Now this one was weird to me, optometrists. Don't know. Bank tellers and insurance claim clerks. I figure they're standing between us and the insurance companies. Um, and, and I was pretty glad to know that, it, at least in the list I was looking at, clergy hit in the top 20 of the 300 occupations that they listed. So you, and, and the rest of us are all, all in between. But some, for some more sobering statistics, our current unemployment rate here in the state of North Carolina is 4.7%. That translates into 225,934 persons. It's down a little bit from the national average of 4.9%. And I know in the state, it varies incredibly by counties. But an even more sobering for me is that we have 12.1% of the folks here in North Carolina um, list themselves as underemployed, which means they're either unemployed it means that they are not actively seeking their marginally attached workers, meaning they're discouraged and so they don't think they can get a job. Or they've taken a part-time job um, because of economic conditions in the workforce. 12.1%, that equals to about 580,000 people across the state. Again, it's a little bit less than the 127 nationally. And so I'm sure that any of you here kind of fit into one of those categories. Some of you would say you're incredibly happy and satisfied with your work. Some of you would say that you're not. Some would say that, that you are employed to your fullest. And, and there are others of you that are unemployed or underemployed, that, that you're fighting that feeling of discouragement, that there, there's something out there for you, anything it was interesting to me that as I was listening to NPR this week, they were doing a show that was encouraging high school sophomores and juniors to begin to look at colleges and to think about what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. And one of the things that they said was, rather than living into your passion, as you think about what you're going to do, what you need to do is find out how you can make the most money. And that's what you should go for. And that you can always um, live into your passion by volunteering. I wonder about that. I wonder about that, particularly as we think about how we're going to live and work and how we spend the majority of our time as people of faith, as those who are seeking to follow the example of Jesus Christ. And so as we think about that, I want to share with you a story this morning, a story that I first heard from a preacher in Nashville, Tennessee, Rosemary Brown. 
She's been around for a long time and was one of the first female preachers that I ever got to hear. And she told this story that made a big difference in my life. It was a story about Mark, who was in the back of the plane. He was 19 years old, and he had been sent to fight and fly over a part of the world that he'd had to look up on a map. This was at the time when Hitler was marching across Europe. And word had come back to the United States that they were marching Jews to Lipscomb. And there they were putting them in ovens. There they were gassing them to death. And so Mark had donned a uniform and been sent to serve. And yet he was sitting in the back of that plane. He heard the words that no one in a plane ever wants to hear. Those words, we've been hit. We're on fire. Bail out. Bail out. We've been hit. And just as he heard those words, the smoke began to flow back to where he was. He said he remembered checking his reserve chute. He remembered making sure that that chute was on his back. He remembered running towards that open door in the plane. He remembered reaching for that metal hook and pulling it and looking above him and seeing that white canopy above his head and the jerk that comes when the wind catches it. He remembered rising before he began falling and then floating through the air and what an eerie and awful feeling that was. He remembered looking below him and realizing that there was so much smoke that he couldn't see what was beneath it. And he remembered the moment he passed through that smoke. And then he remembered nothing. When he finally came to, he realized from the smells, from the sights, from what he was hearing, that he was in a hospital. And he looked around and he could see that the rails were up beside his bed and he was trying to figure out where he was. So he, he, he started to raise his hand to, to wave to get somebody's attention. And yet the right hand with which he always waved wasn't there. And then he tried with his left again to wave to find out what was going on. And yet there was no left hand either. And so now panic ran through his body, that, that kind of panic that comes when you've been dreaming and you wake up and, you, and you've been dreaming you're in a deep, dark hole and you wake up and you can't believe where you are. So he tried to turn over and, and to get up, to, to figure out what was going on. And yet when he tried to push and get up, you know how natural that is. There was nothing to push off with. And he looked down the edge of the bed and where there should have been feet, there were none. And so he screamed. He screamed as loud as he could. And there was a nurse three beds over. And she'd been dreading the moment that he regained consciousness. And she came flying over. And he looked at her and he said, what have you done to me? She tried to touch him. She tried to comfort him. She tried to explain as the tears ran down her face. Mark, when you came down to earth... You came down on electrified barbed wire. And we don't know how long you'd been there before they found you, but we do know that your arms and your legs had been burned incredibly and that gangrene had already set in. And we think if it wasn't for that reserve chute, you wouldn't have made it. And then she turned and quickly walked away. And Mark lay there. Lay there trying to process, trying to comprehend 
what she'd said to him. I'm 19 years old and I'm a torso. I'm 19 years old and I don't have any arms and I don't have any legs. Oh God, why am I here? Everybody tried to help him. But bitterness set in. And pretty soon he began to refer to himself as Humpty Dumpty. Because all the king's horses and all the king's men and all the doctors in the great army couldn't put him back together again. He got madder and madder and madder, more and more bitter, more more determined to pretend he just wasn't alive. Until one day, one day for a reason he never quite understood, he began to remember. He remembered who he was before he put on that uniform, before he jumped out of that plane. And so the nurse came by his bed and he said to her, hey, did, did I have in on any clothes when I came in here? She said, yes. He said, well, do you know where they are? She said, yeah, they're out in the hallway in a locker with your name on it. He said, well, would you go out there and would you look in that locker and would you see if in my shirt pocket there's a, a little black book? And if there is, would you bring it to me? So the nurse went out and she found the locker with Mark's name on it and she found his shirt and in the pocket there was a little black book. And he said, well, would you turn to John 3.16 and read it to me? And here's what she read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Mark said, well, could you explain that to me? Gosh, she wanted to. What an incredible question from a 19-year-old man with no arms and no legs to ask such a question. And, and she tried, and, and he said, okay, well, would you put the book back in my shirt pocket? And as she left, Mark bowed his head in prayer. He remembered who he was. One by one, Mark took on everybody in the hospital. Every time a medic would come by, he'd say, hey, there's a locker out there with my name on it. And in that locker, there's a shirt. And in the shirt, there's a a little black book in the pocket. Would you go and get it and bring it to me one by one? He had them read him John 3.16. He took on the orderlies. He took on the nurses. Even when a patient walked by, a patient looking like the end of the world had come, one of the precious young men who had been wounded in battle would walk by his bed. He'd say, hey, there's a locker in the hall. And one by one, he had them read him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. One day he was lying there in that bed and and a doctor came through the door that he'd never seen before. He asked the nurse who it was and she said, well, Mark, that's the doctor that did your surgery. Well, but you can imagine that Mark was waiting for that moment. So Mark, doctor came over to the bed, sat down and Mark had this incredible grin on his face. 
And the doctor took one look at him and said, young man, I don't know what has happened to you. When I left you, you were crying out for death. I've lived with the burden of taking off your arms and your legs for two months now. What on earth has happened to you? And Mark said, well, hey, doc, there's a locker in the hall. And in that locker, you'll find my shirt. And in my shirt pocket, you'll find a little black book. Would you go and get that for me? When he did and came back and sat down on the edge of the bed, Mark said, would you find John 3.16 and read it to me? That doctor had spent the last year of his life taking off arms and legs. That doctor had spent the last year of his life putting young men's bodies back together again. That doctor felt like an incredible failure and he'd gotten to that point where he thought if one more bomb dropped or one more plane went down, he would just go somewhere and go totally crazy. He'd forgotten about that book. He'd forgotten who he was. But he found John 3.16 and he read to Mark, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Mark said, Doc, you know what? I'm whosoever. I'm whosoever. And I did not perish. And so with God's help, I'm determined to do something with my life. They brought Mark back to the States. They took him to Walter Reed Hospital where they worked with him for about a year until he finally could leave walking tall with his new prosthesis, an arm that could be attached to a crutch and two legs. Friends, do you know who you are? Do you know that you are God's whosoever? And that on this Labor Day weekend, God wants us to be reminded that God wants us to do something. Do something with our lives. And one of the things I get afraid of is that we've bought a lie. We've bought the lie that somehow if we can just get enough money, if our compensation is just to the right level, if we can just get enough benefits, that that's what's going to make us satisfied. But as God's whosoever, as those who have been created by God, created in the image of God, been given gifts and talents and skills by God, employing those is the only thing that's going to make us happy. Now, I don't for one minute believe that we shouldn't have a livable wage. Nor do I get really upset with the discrepancy between what we pay pro athletes and what we pay teachers who are molding one young lives. To me, it's a sign of our whacked out priorities in this society. But friends, over the last four weeks, we've been talking about what it means to live into God's kingdom. And one of my visions of God's kingdom is that it's a place where every person, regardless of compensation, gets to spend the majority of their time living out their passion, employing the gifts and the skills and the talents that God has given us for the good of this world, to share love, 
to share hope, to make this world a better place. But I also know it's not that easy. That you just can't go out and, and get a job in your passions easy, very easily. And, and sometimes you've got to stay in the job you've got because you've got to care for your family. So as we think about our work in a faithful way this weekend, I want us to give some handles no matter what we're doing. Maybe we are in that place of passion, but maybe we're not. But we can still make a difference. God can still use us. God can still use us to do something with our lives. And to do that, I think we've got to do four things. And they're real easy. The first one is, is wherever we're employed or in whatever we're doing, we got to show up. We got to show up with all of who we are, with the best of who we are, with the greatest attitude that we can come with to be of use for God. And the second thing we've got to do is we've got to pay attention. Pay attention to where the needs are. Who are the people that we need to build relationships with? Who are the folks that are hurting? Who of those might have a need that we can help with regardless of what they're doing? We've got to pay attention. And the third thing we've got to do besides showing up, besides paying attention, is cooperating with God. Joining with what God wants us to do. Maybe it's we've noticed somebody at work, has, they just don't seem to, to have the pep or the happiness they did, they did. And maybe we just need to take them to lunch. Maybe we've met somebody that's looking for meaning in their lives and we need to invite them to come here and to check out West. Maybe it's, they have a need in their home that we could get a group of people together and, and answer that need. But we've got to pay attention and, and cooperate with God where God wants to work. So that they too might come to know that they are God's whosoever. And then the final thing we've got to do is release the outcome. That as long as we've done our best, as long as we've showed up, as long as we've brought who we are, as long as we've been a person who's been willing to, to see the needs are and try to meet those needs, then we leave the rest up to God. Knowing that God will speak to that person or those persons or, or even our bosses in God's time. Doing those four things, showing up, paying attention, cooperating with God, releasing the outcome are, are all ways that we can live faithfully, that we can live fully. And I really think it'll increase our job satisfaction. This morning, I want you to remember more than anything else that each and every one of you here are God so, God's whosoever. You're the one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You're loved incredibly by God. You've been given skills and abilities to be used so that your life may be full. So may we put those into use. May we employ those so that the world out there will know that they too are God's whosoever. And they're loved, and they're cared for, and there's a reason why they're here. Would you pray with me? Almighty and gracious God, on this Labor Day Sunday, we come together, some of us excited about the jobs that we have, our occupations, our vocations, some of us longing for something better. But God, help us to know that you're in the midst of all of that. 
Help us to participate with you in making our places of work, in making our city, in making our world a better place as we cooperate with you, as we do what you would have us to do, as we follow Jesus. Amen. So friends, greater things are yet to be done in the city. Let us go forth working with God to make a difference, to let the city know that they too are God's whosoever. Have a great Labor Day weekend.